11. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 11. The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Thank you, Julie, very much indeed. <clears throat> well, do please keep your Bible open um, at that passage. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you have taught us that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We pray that you would come to us this morning as a father with little children, that you would break down for us the bread of life. We pray that you would not only open our mouths that we might feed, but also our hearts, that we might inwardly digest the food of the gospel. And we pray that as we look again into your word, that we might find our Lord Jesus as the bread of life who has come down from heaven, that in him we might enjoy eternal and everlasting life. Speak to us then, Lord, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. don't know if you're interested in art, but uh, the art critics tell us that the difference between um, a good portrait, a good portrait of somebody, and a great one, is that in a truly great painting, the, the character of the subject really comes through. So if you know the person, 
Uh, when, you, when you look at the painting, it's almost as if you can hear their voice. You feel as if they're in the room with you. In order to be able to do that, some of the best artists in the world over history, men like perhaps Rembrandt or Michelangelo, they would often uh, produce several sketches of the subject in pen and ink before they actually began to do the final masterpiece. If you like, these, these sketches were a practice run. Uh, they were an attempt to capture particular features of the subject, uh, maybe the way that they smile, uh, or perhaps how they look when they're thinking about something. Now, the servant songs in Isaiah's book are rather like that. That they're word sketches of Jesus, inspired by God through the prophet Isaiah, centuries before Jesus came into the world. Of course, the Gospels give us the final portrait, and we won't understand who we are and what God has done for us through Jesus without studying the Gospels. But the servant songs give us unique insights into the character and the work of Jesus that we actually don't see quite so clearly anywhere else in the Bible. Now here in this, this third of the servant songs, this third poem, we're given a tremendous insight into the psychology of Jesus. So in verses 4 to 9, we're listening to Jesus uh, describing for us his personal relationship with God the Father 700 years before he took on flesh. And then at the end of the passage in verses 10 and 11, we have, if you like, a word from heaven telling us what to do with what we've heard. But of course, if we're to appreciate what any of this means for us this morning, we have to start by looking at the context. Uh, last week, when White was preaching for us, we saw that God gave the servant a global mission. Yes, of course, the servant's first task was to restore the relationship between God and Israel. Uh, but God also commissioned the servant to take God's salvation to the ends of the earth. That was the message of chapter 49 last week. The message was that the destiny of the entire world is somehow bound up with the ministry of the servant. Now, at this point in Isaiah's book, the big question is, well, can God really do this? Can we trust him? And these chapters actually give us two totally different answers to that question. The first is back there in chapter 49. Just please glance back with me for a moment, please, to Isaiah 49 and verse 14. Verse 14, Isaiah 49 because that verse tells us how the people of Israel were feeling about it. Isaiah 49, verse 14, but Zion, that means the people of Israel, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord's forgotten me. In other words, they're skeptical. Notice, will you, very important, that they still believe in God, 
Because as far as they're concerned, he's the Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your Bible. Can you see that? When you find the word Lord in capital letters in your Bible, it's the way that our Bibles capture the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the personal covenant name of God. So the people with this complaint still believe in God, but they're living in exile in a pagan country, They're living with the consequences of God's judgment. And they're weary, they're they're exhausted, because right now, as far as they can tell, the Lord seems to be a million miles away. So they're saying, the Lord has forgotten me. Now, is there anybody here this morning who's never thought that? Who's never actually felt that way? No, there isn't. So immediately, all of us are feeling a personal connection with the text. And what follows from verse 15 of chapter 49, and actually for the next four chapters, is God's response to their despair and unbelief with words of tremendous comfort and reassurance. It's actually a very striking feature of this section of Isaiah's book, that one short expression of despair by God's people unleashes four chapters of reassurance. It's as if God wants to overwhelm his people with a tidal wave of comfort and confidence. And uh, this third servant song in Isaiah 50, the passage Julie read, is the climax of that confidence-building program. So so what can we learn this morning? Well, to all who are weary of living in a world under judgment, I am and I'm sure you are, to all who are weary of the abuse and ridicule that comes with being a Christian, and who are weary of waiting for God to come and put everything right, the servant gives us three encouragements. So first, the servant gives us an example to follow. He gives us an example to follow. And here we're fixing our eyes on verse 4. The the first three words of verse 4 are a dazzling ray of light and hope. Because the servant speaks about God as the sovereign Lord. Now, this is the only song in Isaiah in which he addresses God that way. And here, he uses it no less than four times. Please look at it. Verse 4, obviously. Verse 5, it's there again. Verse 7, there again. And verse 9. Uh, In the original, the name is Yahweh Adonai. And a literal translation of that would be God who saves with all his absolute power. So have you got the picture? While Zion is saying, the Lord has forgotten me, the servant speaks about the sovereign Lord who's done certain things through him that guarantee God's promise. And the first of those things is in verse 4. Have a look at it. 
The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Now last week, in the second of the servant songs, the the emphasis was on the power of God's word through the servant. You cast your mind back, you remember we saw that the Lord made his mouth like a sharpened sword. But this week, the emphasis is not on the power of his word, it's on the purpose of God's word. So this is new information. And the purpose of God's word is to sustain the weary. The word sustain means literally to speak a word in season. In other words, it's talking about knowing exactly what the weary person needs to hear at that moment in order to get them back on their feet. And the reason that the servant is able to sustain the weary, to to bring reassurance and hope to people who are running on fumes spiritually, is not because he's got a degree in counselling or psychotherapy. No, it's because the servant has been instructed by God himself. You see there it says he listens to God's word daily, morning by morning. So he studies it. He gives it time when he knows that he's not going to be disturbed. And he applies it to his own life first before he begins to teach it to others. Now, all of that means that the servant is a model disciple. And because he's a model disciple, he can help other people. Now, of course, you might be ahead of me here. There is a huge assumption in that verse. Because the text is saying that support for weary people, for people who are barely hanging on, comes from a word from God. And our culture has enormous difficulty with that. Our culture says that people already have far too many words to listen to. They want experiences. They want practical help. And so skeptics read verse 4 and they say, well, look, frankly, if all you've got is a word from God, it's not enough. And we have to say that both the evidence of Scripture and our own experience say otherwise. So do you remember when Jesus is confronted by the devil? After 40 days in the desert, Jesus is hungry. He's weary. What does he do? Well, he quotes scripture, doesn't he? He says, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. So just picture that. There's Jesus under the most intense spiritual pressure and what sustains Jesus is standing on the authority of God's word and then again a bit later in the gospels when his enemies are trying to discredit his ministry and they're trying to trip him up with his views on divorce where does Jesus go for support well he quotes Genesis 2 doesn't he 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So again, you see, Jesus is standing on the authority of the Old Testament. And of course, the ultimate example is when he's hanging there on the cross, isn't it? You know, he's, he's in a situation of extreme anguish. Where does Jesus go in that moment? Well, he feeds on Psalm 22. Psalm 22, as you know, famously begins with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it doesn't stop there. Because a bit later, Psalm 22, verse 24, says the Lord has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He's not hidden his face from him. He's listened to his cry for help. Now, can you see that in his darkest hour, Jesus drew strength from the promise of Scripture? And the point you see is that the faithful, obedient listening to God's word sustained Jesus personally, and that was what equipped him to help other people. Now, that is the pattern for you and me. Um, Alexander White was the minister of a church in Edinburgh, St. George's Church in Edinburgh in the early 20th century. And in his biography, he talks about a time when he had to visit his lawyer to sort out some difficult family business. Uh, the lawyer was quite old. He was about 80 years old at the time. When they'd finished their business, the lawyer cleared the desk of the paperwork, turned to Dr. White and said, have you got a word for an old sinner? And uh, Dr. White says he was surprised by the question because he'd always taken his friend to be a sincere Christian. He didn't immediately know how to respond. But then he remembered a word from his devotions that morning from the prophet Micah, chapter 7, verse 18, which says, the Lord delights to show mercy. And he shared that verse with the lawyer, and they spoke about the Lord's mercy together for a few minutes, and then Dr. White left. And the next morning, he received a card from his lawyer friend, where the lawyer said that those few words from Micah did him so much good. Apparently, he'd been going through a long period of great spiritual darkness. He'd been doubting his own salvation. And those words of comfort from Micah 7 blew all the darkness away, and they stayed with him very significantly until he died just a few days later. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because when somebody comes to you or me in need of help, there isn't time to go away and prepare a Bible study. There isn't. They need help now. And you and I need to be so full of God's word that we've got something that will sustain them now. But, of course, that's only going to happen if we have an ear that listens submissively to the word of God morning by morning so that it becomes part of us. So the servant gives us an example to follow. Second, the servant gives us a confidence to embrace. 
And here we're looking at verses 5 to 9. Now, in verses 5 and 6, the mood of the song changes completely. Just have a look at verse 5 with me. Can we all see verse 5 in our Bibles? The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. Now listen to this. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Now, we're not told yet why the servant was suffering like this. If you want to know why he's suffering like this, you've got to come back next Sunday morning when we look at Isaiah 53 together. This morning, I just want to make two observations about the suffering of the servant, which can be a source of tremendous strength and confidence for us as we face the suffering and the trials that are an unavoidable part of the Christian life. <clears throat> First of all, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, <clears throat> please will you notice that the servant accepted his suffering willingly. Now just follow the argument here. Because in these two verses, verses 5 and 6, there is a movement from listening, just look at verse 5, the Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, he's listening, to obedience, also verse 5, I have not been rebellious, I have not drawn back, to suffering, verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me. So the servant obeys God's word even though he knows that his obedience is going to lead into the most intense personal humiliation and pain. And of course, you can see, can't you, that these are an uncannily detailed forecast of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, aren't they? Let's remind ourselves of that. Keep a finger in Isaiah 50. Turn quickly to Matthew 27. Let me hear those pages rustling. Matthew 27, verse 27. Now, some of you will be familiar with these verses. I guess all of you are, probably. But I want you to read them this morning with Isaiah 50 in the back of your mind. Matthew 27, <coughs> verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. So, folks, the, the, the beating, the mocking, the spitting, the humiliation Jesus suffered 
was all foretold in Scripture 700 years before it happened. That means it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a sign that God had lost control of the situation. It was all God's design, and the servant accepted it willingly. And as I say, we'll see why he suffered next Sunday morning. But can you see that the servant is not merely a minister to people who are weary and suffering? He's been there himself. He knows all about it. Now that means when you and I cry out to him in prayer in the darkest moments of our own lives, he understands. He understands. Makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Come back to Isaiah 50. And notice, secondly, that the servant faced his suffering confidently. We're looking at verse 7. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Isn't that astonishing? You know, the servant knows all about the terrible humiliation and degradation that's coming his way, and yet he also knows that will not be the end of the story. He will not be disgraced. He will not be put to shame. Why is that? Well, it's because his trust is in the sovereign Lord. He says, the sovereign Lord helps me. He says it twice. Once in verse 7, then again, verse 9. So what's the point? The point is that for most Christians, suffering and trials tempt you and I to want to disengage. Because we think to ourselves, you know, God is not in control. Uh, We want to retreat to the sidelines of all Christian activity until the storm has passed. And then we might consider coming back to church. Isaiah's message is, please don't do that. You read Call to Prayer this morning. Do you remember who wrote the prayer? Joni Erickson, wasn't it? Joni Erickson has been a quadriplegic for, I think, five decades. She had a diving accident when she was 17 years old. On top of that, 10 years ago, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. So Joni has had far more than her fair share of suffering. If anybody had a reason to withdraw from Christian service until the storm had passed, it would be her. But what has she done? Well, in a magazine interview, she said this, quote, cancer and chronic pain on top of quadriplegia is a little challenging. Well, that's the understatement of the century, isn't it? Right now, I'm tired of the chemotherapy, and that, coupled with the pain, makes it difficult. And at times, I've thought, Lord, this is an awful lot to bear. Are you sure you know what you're doing? It's very human and down-to-earth, that, isn't it? But then she says... Even though it seems an awful lot is being piled on, I keep thinking about 1 Peter 1 verse 20, 1 Peter 2 verse 21, 
which says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And she says, well, those steps most often lead Christians not to miraculous divine interventions, but directly into the fellowship of suffering. And in a way, I've been drawn closer to the Savior, even with breast cancer. There are things about God's character that I've learned that I wasn't seeing a year ago or even six months ago. And that's telling me that I'm still growing and still being transformed. And she says 1 Peter 2 verse 21 is a terrific rule of thumb for any Christian struggling to understand God's purpose in suffering. See, I think what we're saying here is that being confident in the face of trials and hardship does not mean being mindlessly optimistic. You know, we don't come into church with a painted smile on our face. It means remembering that because God is sovereign over absolutely everything, he has decided what type of trial we must face, how intense it will be, and how long it will last. We might not actually discover the purpose of the trial until we get to heaven. But the servant shows us that God will help us through it. And just like the servant, we know that our own suffering here and now is never the end of the story. It's not. That actually is the message of verses 8 and 9 where in the song the scene moves to a courtroom. Uh, the enemies of the servant are in the courtroom with him. And the servant knows that all human life is accountable to God as our judge. That means that everything that you and I have said or thought or done will be brought out into the open to be judged by God. But in these verses, very interesting... The servant is not aware that he's anything to be afraid of. Just look with me at verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? Now how different that is from all of us here this morning. Why? Because all of us here this morning, me included, all of us have got skeletons in the cupboard. Yes? There are things in our past which, uh, if they ever became public, would be devastating for us. Very interesting that the servant shows not the slightest sense of anything to be ashamed of. He turns to his enemies, and in effect, what he says is, bring it on. And when we read the Gospels, we see how that was fulfilled. The enemies of Jesus dragged him before Pontius Pilate. What did Pontius Pilate say? I find no basis for a charge against this man. Remember when Jesus is hanging up there on the cross? One of the criminals being crucified alongside him hurls insults at him. And the other one says, 
be quiet, we're punished justly, we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then, watching as Jesus died, the Roman centurion says, surely this man was the son of God, i.e. sinless. Now those things could never be said about anybody else. And for that reason, Isaiah 50, verse 8, is the heart of the gospel. It's reminding us that each one of us is going to stand before God on the day of judgment, and our enemies will be waiting to bring their charges against us. Who are our enemies? Satan, our conscience, our past life. They're all going to bring a long list of charges for us to answer. But the believer stands there hidden in Christ. And you see, that is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 takes verses 8 and 9 of our passage this morning in Isaiah 50. He quotes them. And the Apostle Paul says this, If God is for us, and he is, who can be against us? And the answer, of course, is no one. And if we're Christians, if we've repented and surrendered our lives to Jesus, that is the confidence we embrace. Whatever trials, whatever hardships we might have to face in this life, God, who is the sovereign Lord, will always be there to help us. And on the last day, we'll stand before him, hidden in Christ, and God's verdict announced to the entire universe will be no condemnation. Do you, do you get the wonder of that? It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Lastly this morning, there's the reminder that for each one of us, there is a choice we have to make. A choice we have to make. Verses 10 and 11. Have you heard of, do you know what I mean by Sarah Ferguson? Have you heard of Sarah Ferguson? Duchess of York? Strange woman. Um, she was uh, being interviewed on television once, and uh, she was asked about her philosophy of life and her spirituality. And she said... My philosophy of life and my spirituality is rather like baking a cake. I look to see what's in the cupboard. I never follow a recipe. I just throw everything into the mixture, and whatever comes out of it, that's my cake. We might smile, but we all know people like that. By contrast, verses 10 and 11 are looking back to what the servant has said in verses 4 to 9. And those verses present every human being with a choice, with two totally different outcomes. Look with me at verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now, verse 10 is saying that to fear the Lord means listening to and obeying his word spoken by the servant. 
And if we're really listening to it, it will lead us to trust and reliance on the Lord, even if the context in which we are doing that is the deepest darkness. And of course, we have, this is wonderful, we have the marvelous incentive of seeing that pattern worked out and fulfilled in Jesus. Which means, you see, that however dark things might get for you and me in this life, and sometimes they're very dark, the resurrection of Jesus is God's guarantee of our future salvation, of our resurrection, and of our vindication before the judgment throne of God. You see, the alternative is there in verse 11. We close with this. Please look at it. The alternative is to light your own fire, meaning to look for your own explanation, your own illumination. Lots of people are doing it. Those fires might burn very brightly for a short time, but they can never save you. And to use them, to put your trust in them, is actually to reject the light God has given through the servant. And you see, God's verdict on people who live like that is there at the end of verse 11, isn't it? These are very chilling words. For people like that, God says, this is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Well, God forbid that that would happen to anyone here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this.